Well, the pillaging of land from 1492 onward was all kind of with the intent to gain some sort of profit and to build some sort of empire at the expense of other people's lives. So with indigenous people, it was their lives that were deemed disposable. And the indigenous people, since time immemorial, have shared a deep connection with the land and have based their humanity in that connection to the land. Not so much that they own the land, but that they belong to the land, they came from it, and that they have some sort of responsibility to take care of it. And that connection was lost. Um, and now we're in this mess called climate change. <laughs> Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. Thanks for joining us. This episode, we're going to dig into the words of Mickey Matiba, the young Navajo woman we just heard from. The stories we're sharing today carry reverberations of Mickey's words, of deep connections with the land, of disruptions from climate change, and of indigenous lives that have been deemed disposable. This takes us out to the Four Corners region of the United States, to Navajo Nation, the largest Native American reservation in the U.S., and one of the very few that is on original indigenous land. But first, let's backtrack to where we left off last week, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There's a saying, um, Welcome to the village, learn the rules. So I'm on someone else's land, so what is the right way to be on this land as a guest? We're talking with a woman named Syra. My name is Saira Namaste. Syra is the one we met back at Albuquerque Mennonite Church, who oriented us to New Mexico in episode two. She's not originally from here, but when she moved to the area, she took her status as an outsider seriously. And what Native people taught me too was that there are many tribes here, and when you enter someone else's land, there is a way that you enter. So you either enter with a song that says why you're coming, um, or you enter with a song of like that you're coming for war, or you're coming as a peaceful person, or you're coming for a particular celebration, or like there are different ways that you enter people's lands, that indigenous people did that. So I have to figure out for myself, and it's a long process, like what is the way that I've entered here? As we talked with Syra, I realized that before this year, I wouldn't have considered myself a settler. It's easy to forget that I'm living on land that was home to others, and that I'm benefiting from systems that are still actively oppressing Native people. So we wondered how Syra reconciles her identity as a white European settler on Navajo, Apache, Pueblo, and Ute land. I think that a person can feel bad or guilty, but obviously none of us choose like when we're born, like what race we are, or where we're born, or, or anything like that. And so for me, um, what Native people here have taught me is being a settler means that I need to recognize that I don't belong to this land and then find the ways where I, where I can ask permission about then how do I be? I'm a guest. How do I then as a guest be here? Like what do I need to do to show respect? Syra works and learns alongside indigenous people every day. And she's learned a lot about what it means to be a guest along the way. I, I learned from indigenous people like to take the long view. Um, for example, 
the Sandia Pueblo is north of Albuquerque, and they had decided to sue to get back land that was taken from them, and that land now has mansions on it. It's a lot of people's second homes. They're huge mansions, right next to a herd of buffalo that belonged to the Pueblo. The Pueblo sued, and they won their land back, but they gave the homeowners 100 years to move off the land. This is really common when I meet and work with indigenous people, that they don't do things in like 10-year increments. They think of things in terms of like centuries. Yeah. And so when I talk to indigenous people, it's, their time frame is not a Western time frame. Things are thought of in terms of generations. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they can tell you things that happened 300 years ago that they're still doing today. That generational awareness and preservation of ancestral wisdom means indigenous people have a different perspective when it comes to seeing the shape of the land change over centuries. As a result, Cyrus says that Native Americans also noticed climate change a while ago. I've also found that indigenous people were aware of climate change long before Al Gore was talking about, you know, brought that up, right? So indigenous people I work with, because they live so close to the earth, they were noticing a change in like when trees were blooming or when birds were migrating or what birds that were no longer migrating. Or they were noticing all these things because that was their daily life. In our last episode, Cyrus told us how indigenous people in New Mexico still watch the snowpack in the mountains to determine how much water they'll have in a given summer, and therefore what they should plant that year. So there were meetings happening between indigenous peoples in New Mexico and Central America and South America, actually. Quiet meetings, um, sharing knowledge that they had. So they're talking about not only what they observe in their lifetime and what their grandfather said, what their grandmother said, what their great-grandparents like There are things that they've been doing ceremonially for hundreds of years, and so they're, they're noticing these things. So they're thinking about things like adapting seeds, and they believe that seeds talk to each other. So indigenous peoples here have been experimenting with bringing seeds from colder climates down here to talk to the seeds here so that the seeds know how to adapt. And then they're taking seeds from warmer climates to places that are getting hotter so that seeds will talk to each other. And they see seeds as like living beings that are similar to their children. These are seeds that have been passed down for generations and generations. Preserving the seeds is incredibly important because they're quickly disappearing. I work with one indigenous farmer in his 20s, and he has, there's, there's a certain kind of melon in his tribe that's really important, and they're only down to a handful of seeds of that melon, and he's been entrusted with them. And it's a super serious thing to be entrusted with it. So he planted some of it last year, and none of them grew. So now he's down to like the last little bit. And so he needs them to grow so that then he could save the seed again to keep right. that melon going. And when he cares for the plants, you know, he can't leave them unwatered. His uncle will scold him. Like these are like their children. Like they have to keep that line of, of seed going. Our conversation with Syro was an interesting lead up to our time on Navajo Nation. When we talked to most people, emotions around climate change run high. But whenever we talked to Navajo about climate change, they spoke entirely matter-of-factly about it. And we're starting to understand that this is because they've been seeing it for decades. It's not something they worry about because they're already living it. We first got this sense from a man we met 300 miles west of Albuquerque, in the southwest corner of Navajo Nation. You know, start saving seeds, you gotta take care of your seeds. If you drop a seed, you gotta pick it back up. Um, Because, you know, you gotta treat them just like you would with your kids, you know. This is Stacy Jensen. I'm Stacy. I'm from Loop, Arizona, which is on the Navajo Nation. Stacy sat across from us on an overturned cooler in the farm shed, with a bandana holding his hair back, a thermos of coffee in his hand, and a glimmer in his eye. And uh, I am the farm manager at North Loop Farm, which is a small farm, a nonprofit organization. We had just finished looking around the farm with Stacy, but unfortunately, most of our tours sounded like this. 
You'll have to forgive us for the times when the wind drowns out our conversations. It's kind of a theme for this episode. How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> that means I'm part of the Gap Rock people. And Twitchaby uh, is the bitter water. Uh, those are my, my father's, my paternal clan. North Loop Family Farm is located off of a long dirt road that winds its way off of another long road, one of the few that crosses the reservation. If you look closely, you can see the little Colorado River snaking its way off to the west. The farm sits on a piece of land split into 30 plots, each one designed and cultivated by a Navajo family. And off to one side is a greenhouse and a shade house, which were growing garlic and greens when we were there. The farm's water is supplied by a well just up the way, which is powered by a field of solar panels. I always say that, um, you know, as, as Native people, Indigenous people, we have this extra spirit um, that, you know, connects us to the earth. <clears throat> In my case, for example, you know, I grew up herding sheep here, you know, and I grew up, now what they say, Shiaho, I grew up around here. This land has been home to Stacy's family for a long time. No one owns the land, it's on the reservation, but it's where his grandmother's people grew up and made their home as well. The little Colorado River runs here. I remember as a kid, I spent a lot of time over there. I used to uh, catch catfish, you know, for for lunch or something. (laughs) And uh, so later on when I came back, I went back over there. I was, you know, so moved that I went in cups of the water, the river, and I could actually taste it in my mouth. So that's the kind of connect, the symbiotic connection mm-hmm. that you know I, I grew up with. Um, I, uh, it's a very important part of me, mm-hmm. the earth. And for Stacy, that relationship comes with a responsibility. You know, seeds is very important. It's like, it's like us. You know, we came from a seed, my um, father's seed, your mother's seed. Um, so in a, in each uh, stage of a, a life of a seed. It's like, you know, a person growing up, it's milestones. Mm-hmm. You know, you're born, you germinate, and then you start growing, you know, you feel safe, learn how to walk. Yeah. And well, the same with the plants. On the wall behind Stacy, there's a shelf holding jars full of seeds. These are heirloom seeds, the type Syra told us about earlier. In essence, I think, you know, having our own seeds, and also uh, because of the, um, because of the, um, the adaptation that we have out here. A lot of the seeds that are out in the market will not grow out here. Mm-hmm. So we have to train our seeds to to be, uh, you know, adaptable out here. So these seeds will grow out here with little or sometimes very, uh, very scarce water. Mm-hmm. They're uh, drought tolerant. Preserving drought tolerant seeds is crucial to Stacy's operation because the land is getting hotter and drier all the time. When we walked around the farm, he continuously pointed out ways that the land has changed in his lifetime. I, I hear you. Remember, I, I talked about how the river used to meander and used to be, you know, well, you don't see that anymore mm-hmm. because uh, of the climate change, you know. That. And then people invading, you know, messing around with nature and the, that causes stuff like that. Sometimes they become so irreversible. I remember growing up, it used to be a lot greener. Used to, um, we used to actually get snow at one time. To the untrained eye, the farm and surrounding area looks like an infertile desert. The soil is reddish-brown and very fine, blown around by the wind when it's not secured by the shrubs and long grasses. 
In many places, the ground cracks under your feet when you walk, the cracks spider webbing out from your footsteps. You don't see a lot of the, uh, the crops that used to grow back in the day. You don't see that out here anymore. Yeah. That's due to climate changes as well as overgrazing. Mm -hmm. Some species that Stacy remembers as a kid have disappeared entirely. I remember there used to be uh, some plants that um, the grandma would use for dye, you know, when she did like uh, uh, weaving. And so she would, you know, she would dye the, uh, the, the wool with that. Well, a lot of those plants, the coloring plants, they're, they're not around anymore. He says he can attest to the way things are getting hotter and drier. And then there's the soil. The soil is um, getting to a point where if we don't do anything about it, it's going to be unrepairable. Mm -hmm. You'll see places out here like that. You know, no matter what you do to it, it's not going to come, it's not going to grow anything. Mm -hmm. Even in the cultivated areas, it seems like a miracle that Stacy can grow anything. But Stacy assured us that you get to know the secrets of the land. And this is why the collective nature of the farm is so important. It's more than just a space to grow food. It's a place where Stacy brings people together to learn and remember. As I was growing up, we uh, were fully, you know, self-sustaining. Uh, we had our, uh, <coughs> our sheep, so we always had mutton. <laughs> we had uh, wild plants, you know, we would forage. That's how we, you know, got our greens. And then we had the, the wild games, the elks and the deers, and, and, and uh, that's, that's how we sustained ourselves. Uh, and then having a cornfield as well, the agriculture part of it, the plant, the farming part of it. And um, so, food is really important for among our people in learning how to, you know, s sustain yourself with it. This is one part of Stacy's larger vision for the farm to provide his people with a chance to sustain themselves again. But things have changed. Not too many of the young Navajo are interested in farming, and most are looking for wage earning jobs in Flagstaff or other cities, sometimes hours away, which limits the time they can devote to growing food. See, I never was introduced to processed food until I got to um, the government-run school called boarding school. Yeah. And um, from there, you know, I was introduced to uh, milk, <laughs> you know, pasteurized cow milk. Yeah. In, in the old days, it was just mainly sh sheep or goat milk. Mm -hmm. um, and then so, and then a lot of uh, processed like canned foods and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, from there, I really didn't think of it, I mean, because it was survival back then. But when I got to a point where I started to see people, you know, get illnesses and, and dying, and um, it, it just felt like, well, something's got to be causing this. And sure enough, it was the food. Stacy's mission to grow food and share knowledge comes partially as necessity. Navajo Nation is notorious for its inaccessibility to decent food. In an area bigger than West Virginia, with about 350,000 people, there are only 10 grocery stores. Maybe 13, depending on who you ask. There's a small convenience store down the road in Loop, but without his own farm-grown food, Stacy would have to drive 80 miles round trip to get fresh produce and meat. Yeah, I think with food as, you know, like language, um, uh, is fast disappearing. So with what we do at the farm, uh, trying to um, keep alive, you know, the traditional um, approach to farming and the teachings behind it and the songs and the prayers that went with it, I think we're, um, you know, we'll, we'll be around for another century, and even into with our, <clears throat> you know, traditions. 
And of course, traditions change, you know. But in, in the end, I think, you know, your, you know, whatever that tradition is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come from what you learn from your parents. So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think that's how the farm will sort of enhance, you know, the, the longevity of, uh, of our people. Food, like language, is fast disappearing. Stacy is joined by a whole host of others working just as hard to hold on to both, which takes us just down the road. Over here you can see we are growing cilantro, tomatoes, <coughs> sorrel, kale. We're at a place called the Star School, about 20 minutes down the road from Loop, just off the reservation. So the kids are involved in all the planting, the... Um, caring for the plants, and then the harvesting. And we think this is really important because many of our kids, almost all of them, are not familiar with vegetables, where they come from. We're walking around the greenhouses at the Star School, which include a homemade hydroponic system made out of PVC pipe and a vertical growing system shooting mist at the plants growing on clay pebbles. Above the doorway, a sign warns, trespassers will be composted. At our school, we operate on four principles, four values that come directly out of Navajo peacemaking. Okay. It's respect, relationship, responsibility, and reasoning, with the relationship being the key one. So here you see... Walking into the greenhouse felt a little bit like walking into a science experiment, with water turning on and off periodically, and pipes leading every which way, and colorful signs posted on the walls. But it was the greenest 10 square meters we had seen all week in Arizona. So let's go back and talk. Yeah, that would be great. And the man we've been talking to, who gave us a tour of the school, is Mark Sorensen. My name is Mark Sorensen. I am the co-founder and CEO of the Star School, located on the southwest edge of the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona. The Star uh, is an acronym, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I see it on your jacket there. It says yeah. service to all relations. Mm -hmm. Can you break that down for us? What, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, this is a phrase my co-founder came up with. and So uh, when you exit a, a sweat lodge, and enter back into the world, you come out of the sweat lodge and you say, all my relations. And, um, and that's acknowledging your connection to everything in nature. So service to all relations is our attempt to constantly keep before us, because it's in our very name, uh, the idea that we want our children here to learn and practice what it is to uh, be of service to your own community. The Star School is a charter school that runs from preschool to eighth grade, attended primarily by Navajo students. At the foundation of their philosophy is the indigenous understanding that we are related to all things and that we ignore those relationships to our own peril. The Star School is home to a number of programs dedicated to preserving indigenous knowledge, including classes on the Navajo language, Diné. When we first started the school, we, we didn't have a garden at that point. In fact, we didn't even have a cafeteria. Um, we thought, like a lot of charter schools, we thought that we could just have kids bring their own lunches. Well, then we saw a lot of kids coming in with lunches that were, you know, a bag of chips and a can of Coke. And uh, a lot of it had to do with just the lack of availability of good food. We heard this from Stacy too. 
The Navajo Nation is considered a food desert because there are so few grocery stores. And uh, there are vast areas where there is no grocery store at all. And this is one of those areas. So they started their own little cafeteria. But when they started serving whole grain bread or tomatoes and lettuce on the burgers, the kids wouldn't eat it. And they soon realized that the missing component was prior experience with healthy food. And you can talk to them till you're blue in the face as an adult, and kids will not care one little bit about what you say about healthy food. What matters is if they see their peers eating it, and if their peers are having fun with it. So then they started a culinary program, from greenhouse to table, with some surprising results. A few years ago, our eighth grade class who had been through the culinary program and been through the gardening program, had the opportunity to choose their menu for their banquet, their graduating banquet. And so they they made up the menu and then they showed it to me and it had um, kale, um, grilled kale on, on cornbread. And we thought that they had made a mistake. I must admit, I've never tried feeding kale to an eighth grader. But I can imagine Mark's surprise when a group of teenagers voluntarily chose kale for their special meal. So we went back to them and said, uh, are you sure this is the menu you want? And they said, yeah. And I said, kale? And they said, yeah, we made it in culinary class and we really liked it and we want to have it. And they were like, you know, (laughs) they were getting an attitude about it. Like, you know, what do you mean you're questioning our being able to have that? The vast majority of the kids who choose to attend the Star School are Navajo, and like we learned when talking with Stacy, food and diet are ongoing concerns on the reservation. I've done surveys with students just on a hand count, and I've asked how many of you have somebody in your family who has diabetes. Virtually every student raised their hand. Mark told us that the Indian Health Services estimates that one out of every two Navajos in the next decade will be diabetic, or at high-risk levels of diabetes. So diabetes is a, type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle disease. And it's pretty clear that um, it's related to diet and exercise. And part of the diet is food, of course, but the other part of the diet is water. So um, we started doing surveys in our community, and we realized that um, among the elders, There were a lot of people who drank no water every day. They found that the water available locally from the wells was discolored and tasted bad. And on top of that, sodas are cheaper than bottled water on the reservation. And so, in a classic star school bout of ingenuity, Mark and the others turned a school bus into a mobile water filtration system that could drive around and set up in communities. The filtration system is powered by solar panels on the roof of the bus, which brings us to another interesting part about the star school, It's entirely off the grid. And if you look at it in terms of how we're treating the Earth, um, solar power is actually much more congruent with native values than the other forms of power, which include, in in our area, nuclear, coal-fired plants. And uh, that's pretty much it around here. So if we were not uh, providing our own power through solar here, Uh, we would be getting our power from the coal-fired plant that's just down the highway a little ways away. The solar array, along with some wind turbines, made STAR the first off-the-grid public elementary school in the United States. 
In the past seven years, the school has avoided putting 800,000 tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere by using wind and solar power. It's important to get to know your place and the gifts that that place has to give you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a quintessentially indigenous idea. Like I said, you know, the the Europeans who came out here, um, probably one of the reasons most of the native people here are still in their homelands is because Europeans didn't see the ground as useful for growing anything. Mm -hmm. But that's because they didn't understand how the desert works. I must admit that I felt a little bit the same way when I was walking around with Stacy. There is deep knowledge that is carried by the indigenous people. In purely practical terms, let me use the example of corn. So in our area here, corn is is king. Like in the northwest, the salmon, you know, people identify with salmon. And uh, for them, you could say, I am salmon. So here we would say, I am corn. The type of corn traditionally grown here is blue corn. And this is one type of seed Stacy is storing in his shed at North Loop Farms. It's been a staple for the Navajo for hundreds of years since they began farming. So the Europeans took the corn from here back in this case to Italy. And uh, there were a couple of communities in Italy that started growing corn. They liked it a great deal. And people started getting sick, and they didn't understand why. Well, they had brought back the corn, but they hadn't brought back the processing that indigenous people do with corn. So among Navajos, for example, blue corn is mixed with um, cedar ash, or the ash of the juniper tree. When Mark first saw this, he thought the juniper ash was being used for seasoning. But it turns out that juniper ash is rich in calcium, and it's also an alkaline substance. This means that when mixed with the corn, it breaks down the outer shell, making the nutrients of the corn more accessible to the body. And the Europeans didn't get that, because they just brought back the plant, and they didn't bring back the knowledge. Mm -hmm. So there's so much knowledge like this that indigenous people have. Even to this day, even though so much has been lost, there still is a lot of knowledge. And and so not only in terms of dealing with climate change, but just in terms of survival of the human race, um, there are medicines that are in, in our plants. And as climate changes, we may lose those plants before we have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Who has that knowledge? indigenous people. (laughs) But I think that there is a great store of knowledge that has been overlooked and abused. And, um, And it's to all of our detriment. Sometimes when I think about the stories and wisdom we've received from the people we talked with in Arizona, I feel like we brought the corn back home with us, but not the juniper ash. We brought the words, but not the context, and it's important for us to recognize that. Our experience with the Navajo is invaluable, but short-lived, and yours will be even shorter. The importance of lived experience was just one of the things we discussed with Robert Yazzie, Chief Justice Emeritus and Elder of the Navajo. Thank you.
that's uh, the indigenous people. They have these stories that are, I mean, they store them away at different places, you know. Like we have the mountains, it's a repository. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it has in it, because there's people, you know, they tell stories about it. Mm-hmm. And the stories are so powerful that it, it'll tell you, you know, the, the detail of what what was once here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's enough knowledge there to uh, understand almost anything you want to know. We'll be returning to Robert periodically during the remainder of this episode, but for now, we want to focus in on this tension of assimilation which in the 21st century is stronger than ever among the Navajo. This takes us back to Mickey, the Yale student who introduced the episode for us. I'm Mickey. My name is Mickey Matiba. In a strange twist of fate, we actually met Mickey a couple weeks before we traveled to Navajo Nation when we were at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Well, I'm from Deer Springs, Arizona. I feel like it's very rural and small to the point where it could hardly even be considered a community. Maybe just a point of reference, I suppose. That's on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. We actually hadn't been too far from Mickey's home when we met with Robert Yazzie. It was interesting growing up there. It's a lot different from Yale. (laughs) (laughs) How so? (laughs) Um, Well, I guess first off, very rural. Um, It's great being in New Haven, to be honest, just to have a lot more mobility and access to resources and just generally not feeling like I'm in the middle of nowhere. And in true Gen Z fashion, she mentioned that internet speeds are a lot faster in New Haven, something we can attest to as well. But despite the ruralness, Mickey cares deeply for her home and her people. I grew up around Navajo people. Navajo people were really all that I saw back home. And I think that a lot of people back home are still reeling from a lot of trauma caused by settler colonialism. In the years leading up to her move to Yale, Mickey was busy resisting structures that, to her, opposed the ways of the Navajo. Among them are settler colonialism, capitalism, and patriarchy, to name a few. So at one point, I shifted from a mindset that was definitely much more, I need to get out of here, to how can I help in some way, because this is definitely something that affects my family, it affects me, but even just beyond that, it affects everybody in my community and just Native people in general. When she first considered going to school, she saw her decision as a continuation of resistance. But as a student at Yale, she often feels like she's playing into the very institutions she's trying to fight. I wanted to find some way to articulate that and destabilize a lot of those institutions at play. And so, I considered academia, and so where I feel like I'm falling further into the academy, I feel like I'm growing a bit further from my community, but also understanding a lot of the problems or issues present. Mickey represents the same dilemma that thousands of young Navajos have. It's why Mark is promoting the Navajo language and cultural practices at the Star School, and why Stacy is doing his best to encourage other Navajo to join him in using traditional growing techniques at the farm. 
The question that troubles their souls is one echoed by indigenous peoples all around the world and by Mickey. How do we engage with a world that relentlessly funnels us toward assimilation without losing our heritage? I definitely love where I come from. I find it not only very physically beautiful, but just so great that I get to be surrounded by my culture in a way that a lot of Native people aren't. And um, yeah. Back on the reservation, we had a chance to experience something similar to Mickey's world. Just a few miles south from Stacy's farm sits the home of the Thompson family. It's a two-story circular home that resembles a hogan, the traditional house of the Navajo, with a growing room full of tomato and pepper starts attached to one side. Inside, the walls are covered with an assortment of school photos of the kids, images of Disney characters, and posters satirizing the U.S.'s treatment of immigrants. On the table sat a stack of books on food justice, most of which feature our host Tyrone, who's a visionary involved in projects all around the reservation. When we arrived, Tyrone's wife Felicia and their kids welcomed us with fry bread and a dinner of corn, beans, and squash, more commonly known as the Three Sisters. And then once Tyrone arrived home, the kids took off on their bikes, romping around the area neighboring a big garden and shade house while he and Felicia worked beside them. As someone who grew up in a valley, I'll admit that I felt very exposed out there in the middle of the windy desert. The red ground stretched on and on, out toward distant mountains to the west, and a long, straight road crossing the reservation to the south, with no other homes in sight. I think I might get lonely living out there, but for others, I can see how the seclusion might be comforting. That night, we went to bed with the sun. Just a few days before, we were a two hours drive away from Tyrone and Felicia's home at a place you might recognize, one of the biggest tourist attractions in the United States. So we're at the Grand Canyon. Anything to say about it, Harrison? Big. It's big. <laughs> We've finally escaped the hordes of people. Just barely though. I had been to the Grand Canyon before but like most family vacationers, we stayed in Arizona for that reason and that reason only. Though it seems obvious now, I was surprised to realize that the lives of so many Navajo play out less than 100 or even 50 miles from this tourist mecca. I think I find national parks, just observing people to be almost as interesting as the actual landscape. Yeah. In a grand display of transience, six million people visit the Grand Canyon every year without learning much at all about the area's history or the struggles of the people. And for us, the Grand Canyon was well worth a visit, but we were ready to get back to the real world. You know, these are just the sacrifices that, you know, these people make. Yeah. And then um, Stacy came in and didn't have a salary for a long time. Mm -hmm. I said, "How you, you got to feed your kids, you, you, know, you got to keep your wife happy, mm -hmm. pay your bills. I said, this is Rob Redsteer. I tell him, you have to do this because you, um, you know, where's the reciprocity in the mm -hmm. whole process? Yeah. Where is it? 
I said, Native American people have been giving and giving and giving, and society isn't returning that. When we first met Rob, he was sitting in a coffee shop with his longtime friend, Stacy Jensen. Rob was our first contact in Navajo Nation, and he seems to know everyone. He told us story after story. We uh, fought the United States government. We were prisoners of war. We signed a peace treaty with them. They harvested, uh, they set up our tribal government in the 1920s so that they could harvest our natural resources. And they did the trees, the coal, and eventually the uranium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was all uh, take, take, take. Rob was generous with his time, checking in with us several times to see how our week was going, and helping to line up several of our interviews. This is from a conversation we had with Rob towards the end of our time in Arizona. Sovereignty has been, it just has been eroded Mm -hmm. from what we knew it. Because at one time, before uh, contact, our society was an uh, egalitarian society. Women were um, equal to men, and they could um, serve with chiefs. We had 12 peace chiefs and 12 war chiefs that were elected by the clans. And um, they would uh, meet every four years in council and um, discuss the, the health of the tribe and... Mm-hmm. Um, women could input into that. One of the turning points for Navajo women came in 1935, during a time known as the Navajo Livestock Reduction. A man named James Collier, who was commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs at the time, determined that the number of sheep held by the Navajo was nearly four times the carrying capacity of the reservation. So upon the recommendation of a forester concerned about overgrazing and erosion, Collier devised a plan to reduce the livestock of the Navajo by half. But what Collier either disregarded or didn't understand was that not only were the herds sacred to the Navajo, the sheep provided nearly half of the Navajo's income at the time, and across the board, the herds were almost entirely owned by Navajo women. So they came in and slaughtered, you know, just herds, just all of them. It was devastating, so much so that some Navajo refer to this time as the Second Long Walk, referring to deportation and ethnic cleansing of the Navajo by the U.S. government in 1864. And most impacted were the women, many of whom lost all economic stability and therefore social standing. And so the status of Navajo women plummeted. Mm-hmm. And they had no, no wealth, no land, and, uh, and then the men were taught uh, the Navajo men were taught, you know, coming from the government and the schools and stuff like that to put women down. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been a big battle. You know, we've had, even today we have problems with domestic violence. You know, all of this comes out from all, all of that. So when it comes to healing and conflict transformation, Rob said that there's a lot to be reckoned with. So many of the problems Rob sees on the reservation are tied up in years and years of trauma and oppression. And change isn't immediate. It takes a hundred years, he said. So in terms of uh, tribal sovereignty with us, um, at the grassroots, mm-hmm. um, we've lost a lot. Mm-hmm. We're bitter. Uh, some of us are angry. But we're coming to terms with it and dealing with it in this new uh, neo-colonialism. And um, uh, within, within that, we're losing our language and our culture with the young kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I wake up every day thinking, you know, uh, you know, what, what are what today's kids, you know, what, what are we going to do for them? You know, it's an ongoing thing. It's not something you um, 
get up one Sunday and take care of that day, but it's right. ongoing. You wake up, it's, and my doctor's always asking me, you know, Robert, why do you why why do you have high blood pressure? You know, I'm like, where do I start? <laughs> And speaking of doctors, it's time we talked about IHS, the Indian Health Services, official healthcare provider of Navajo Nation. At face value, the IHS looks like a good thing. It's free healthcare that came out of some treaties between the Navajo and the U.S. government in an effort to make healthcare more accessible to Native Americans. But there's a flip side. I had work done on my foot, and the guy had a whole staff of um, interns, I think that's what they're called. And um, there was like eight of them, and that, they all got a chance under surgery when I went in surgery to take a hack at my foot. A few years ago, Rob was in a car accident that seriously damaged both of his ankles. Since then, he's had multiple reconstructive surgeries, with another one scheduled for this year, and his experience with IHS doctors has not been all that smooth. They're fulfilling their, um, their loan agreement. Mm-hmm. They come out and they, they work for free, and uh, very few of them enjoy coming out. Mm. And uh, they, uh, they're new. They don't really know what they're doing. During this surgery, Rob had some hardware, pins and rods, put into one of his ankles, which was, from what he was told, a great alternative to external braces. When, I, uh, when the cast came off, I was looking at my foot you know, on the side, mm-hmm. and there was this ugly scar with a bunch of little staples in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was long, and... Um, I was looking at it, and I said, what the hell happened here? And he, he started laughing. He goes, oh, uh, we had this new guy um, uh, open it up, and then he had to um, staple it back together. And there was about, uh, I'm not kidding, about 40 staples, oh, maybe 50. Oh they were really close. And and he laughed at that? Yeah, he oh, laughed at that. But it doesn't stop there. Rob has even more reason to distrust the healthcare system. What's going on, what I'm leading up to is that... Um, they're using us to experiment. I had mentioned in the 70s they uh, were sterilizing women and uh, experimenting uh, a lot of the contraceptives today are things that they were ex- um, using using the native population to experiment on. And then um, today they're um, with the diabetes epi- epidemic, they're cutting people's um, limbs off without... Um, in some cases, it's not necessary, and um, and in my case, I can talk to the uh, rods and hardware that they convinced me to put in because they said if you put the braces inside your body, you know it's better. But they never talked about the infections mm-hmm. that come from that metal. After the surgery, Rob contracted some pretty nasty infections from the hardware in his ankles, adding even more time to his already lengthy hospital visits. Now he's having surgeries again because a doctor in Flagstaff, not on the reservation, told him he didn't need the rods in the first place. Just two weeks before we talked to Rob, he had had the metal removed from the first of his two ankles. Rob is incredibly resilient, but he insists that his story isn't unique. I've run into other uh, Navajo people out there that are hobbling along, you know. Uh, one guy was telling me his big toe and his middle toe were cut off and he found out it was unnecessary. And he said he's falling because of that because he has no balance. Right. And um, uh, another lady out at uh, Big Mountain, uh, I ran into her at the waiting room in Tuba City, and she started telling me the same stories with her ankle, that they were um, doing the same thing that they're doing with me now. 
and uh, she eventually had them removed. And there's really very little they can do to seek out other professionals, unless they're willing to travel and pay for healthcare services without insurance. But um, <clears throat> they set up little um, hospital regions, mm-hmm. and they serve a certain population, and you can't go, you can't hop over to the other one. Even though the doctors might be better over here, they, you have to stay with some uh, ignorant fool and have them injure you. Mm-hmm. So all of that is, uh, is just, it, it's not working. It's sobering hearing Rob talk. I can't imagine feeling so violated in a setting that's supposed to be a place of healing. Earlier, Rob mentioned the era of new colonialism, which seems like a fitting way to frame this. The life expectancy of the Navajo is five years lower than that of the broader American population, hospitals are referred to as butcher shops, and diabetes is all too prevalent. This is strikingly reminiscent of the diseases that European colonists brought to this continent, wiping out upwards of 90% of the Native American population. And arguably, it's Anglo-Americans that are at fault once again. Rob clued us into another striking example of new colonialism, the exploitation of resources at the expense of his people. This brings us to our next topic. The uranium issue was prophesized. Uh, We were told that if we dug up into the earth, um, messed with the the yellow serpent. Uranium mining. They say if you dig it and bring it up, all kinds of things are going to happen. And... You know, the wars and the people died, a mass amount of people dying from it and stuff. That's all come to fruition, you know, that uh, prophecy. The record of harms related to uranium mining in the Navajo is so overwhelming that it's hard to know where to start. After the advent of nuclear weapons in the 1940s, uranium mining was rapidly developed on Navajo Nation land, which has huge uranium deposits. Not surprisingly, many of the employed miners were Navajo, and there was little communication about the dangers of radiation. Even after it became clear that uranium miners had a much higher incidence of cancer, compensation for the Navajo was hard to come by. On top of this, there have been major instances of radiation contamination, including the largest release of radioactive material in U.S. history ever at Church Rock in 1979. It's a depressing narrative, and much of this, Rob feels, was foretold in prophecy. My... Mom's great-grandmother, she was Apache also, said that, um, well, she said in the future, she said um, what um, her ancestors told her is that, you know, there would be the coming of the white people and that we would intermingle with them and that we would um, eventually lose our culture and our language. And when we became like them, the world would come to an end mm-hmm. and Mother Nature would be fighting um, with all of that that we've been doing to her. When Rob is talking about the loss of balance and the biting of Mother Nature, he's actually talking about climate change. This might be another reason why many of the Native Americans we talk to take climate change in stride, because it fits in with the things that they already believe. It goes all back to our teachings that we have to be living in peace and in nature, with nature, in balance. And um, that would be the only way to avoid it. And if not, then Mother Nature would come back and um, remind us of it. The, the winter storms, the rains, the earthquakes, the tornadoes. We have an agreement with the tornado people. They are not supposed to come into our lands. And um, that's why we live here. And the tornadoes have been touching down on Navajo the past 20 years. 
So that's happening. So we go back to our prophecies and look, and then um, we're warned about them. And we have to pay attention to Mother Earth. As a medicine man, he tells you these stories. Uh, the, the power of the monster. I mean, the uranium as a monster has, has, has been awakened. Mm -hmm. Someone would say it has the element of destruction that one time we used to live with uranium. Mm -hmm. So the people back then says, now that we have done so, I mean, the, uh, the messages don't ever, ever work. Give it life. Mm -hmm. If you give it life, then there will be no way to change anything. Mm -hmm. Once it starts, it only knows destruction. Time for the final part of this story. The monster has been awakened. Are you canning something? I am doing apple butter. Oh, yeah, that's what smells so good. This is Polly Peshlakai Atkinson. When we walked into her house, she greeted us from the kitchen, up to her elbows in apple butter. It was a few days before Easter, and Polly was busy preparing food for the weekend. Rob called me and says, yeah, you got to do this. I said, I'm busy. <laughs> when we talked with Rob earlier in the week, he was adamant that we talked to someone about uranium contamination in the area. And Polly, well, she's a bit of an expert in the field. Not because she studied it, but because she lived it. I got this to can, I got the pies to make, I got to make the rolls, I got to make some cookies. That is a lot. <laughs> and I got to go to my physical therapy. And mm -hmm. I said, oh my goodness, I said, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to make it. After the apple butter was safely cooking away and we were situated around Polly's kitchen table, she started telling us a little bit more about her experience growing up. It was wonderful to me. Uh, I, I think I stayed till about when I was 13 years old. That's as far as I remember. And then we had to move across the river, uh, which is another 10 miles from there. Okay. When you moved, was it because of the mines, or was it? Not yeah. just because of the mines, uh, mainly because we got pushed out, pushed out of the, pushed off the reservation mm -hmm. by the National Mine 
the U.S. government uh, forced us to relocate. Okay, brief diversion here, because this is crazy to me. The land that Polly used to live on is now Wupatki National Monument, which claims to protect a number of pueblos built in the 12th century when the area was more densely populated. Most sources I could find say that the Wupatki area was permanently abandoned by the year 1225, although there were clearly at least a few Navajo families, like Polly's, living there in the early 20th century. The Wupatki National Monument website actually has a really nice page devoted to the approximately 200 Navajos who once lived in the area, and it features Polly and her family heavily, even including pictures of her childhood home and her family tree and some audio from Polly herself. Unfortunately, this webpage is impossible to navigate to from the Wupatki homepage, so it's unlikely that anyone would ever find it. I only did because I searched Polly's name in Google. I could almost find that forgivable, but here's the thing about this website that really gets me. In the sections of the website that you can navigate to, again, the same website that went out of its way to interview Polly and her mother, there is not a single mention of recent Navajo occupation, only vague assurances that many people have called Wupatki home, and by about 1250, the people had moved on. The website's underlying message is clear. This land has been uninhabited for centuries, and now we are protecting it. The section on history and culture ends, and I kid you not, with this sentence. Though no longer occupied, Wupatki is remembered and cared for, not abandoned. With that in mind, let's go back to Polly. Were there a lot of families who were relocated or forced there to There was about maybe 20 to 30 families that were relocated. Wow. Mm-hmm. Some of them moved on their own uh, a few years before because oh, the you. government were saying, you know, you have to move. Mm-hmm. We're giving you some, uh, what is it called, notice uh-huh. ahead of time. How much, how much notice did they give you? Uh, you know what? I don't know. You remember? I don't remember because I was too little yeah. and I was in boarding school. Mm. We've heard a couple of people talk about the boarding schools. Well, what was that like? Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. Like Stacy and many others of her age, Polly was forced to go to an Anglo boarding school as a child. This is a piece of history that carries with it its own horrific set of traumas that we unfortunately can't fully explore within the content of this episode. But we'll let Polly go ahead and tell her story at least. We all marched, oh, picked up, uh, we were picked up uh, on the reservation and taken to the boarding school just one day without any notice and uh, then they cut your hair and they strip your clothes off and march you into a whole thing of shower you know and they pass out clothes that English clothes I imagine it was you know yeah a lot of us were crying because you know we just got pulled off the reservation and and uh, it was really hard. I still remember that day, a horrible day. Polly told us that they were picked up in a paneled vehicle, and to this day, she gets sweaty and nauseous when she drives over this one bridge on the reservation because she can remember the rattling of that first ride. You know, I don't really remember how many years 
I spent there because I just lost track of the time mm -hmm. because I was always wanted to go home mm -hmm. and I always got sick. We got punished a lot. If we started spoke, speaking our native tongue, get caught, uh, we had, they wash our mouth out with soap or we hold soap in our mouth, touching our toes in the hallway, like, you know, for hours. It seemed like hours. Maybe it was only 15 minutes. I don't know. Anglo boarding school was a traumatic experience for Polly. But on top of that, she and her siblings had a ton of health complications. So I got sick a lot over there mm -hmm. from being born the way I was. And uh, never knew, I still to this day, that I'm very sure a lot of that sickness is from the uranium mines mm -hmm. downwind. This is the crux of Polly's story. After Polly was forced off the land that is now Wupatki National Monument, her family moved across the Little Colorado River and up toward Cameron. And all along the river by Cameron were uranium mines that, as it turned out, had never been properly closed. Because everybody, all my siblings were sick uh, with something, heart condition, mm -hmm. cancer, you know, the throat. And uh, my mom uh, had two children stillborn. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and we know of other ladies that had children that were, uh, what do you call, uh, not handicapped, but... With, like, birth defect? Yeah, birth defect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we had some birth defect, too, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you remember seeing signs of the pollution from the uranium? Like, did the water... Like, could you see it in the water at all, or was it pretty um, hard to see? You could, when we were a lot older, when we were up on, on the side of Cameron after, like I say, I was 15 or 16 by that time, mm -hmm. when we were herding the sheep or bringing the sheep back and they would go to the water, mm -hmm. you'll see in the pond, you know, uh, some coloring. Now, I don't know whether it was just from the cows peeing in there or the sheep peeing in there or mm -hmm. the the cottonwood trees or the, the, the pollens that were, right. you know, you could see it on the water. We didn't know any better. We, right. we laid around in it, swam around in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's no wonder I'm not glowing in the dark anymore, you know, <laughs> these days. Here's just a brief snapshot of what Polly's life has been like so far. She's had thyroid and heart problems all her life and had her first open heart surgery at age 14. She now wears a pacemaker. Her sister, Eleanor, had her thyroid taken out when she was in her 20s. Two of Polly's younger siblings passed away last year within a week of each other, and the list goes on. I said, I don't know how we lived through all of that. I said, you know, but we're suffering from it now, I believe. Yeah. Never got myself tested. But I just know in my head and my heart. And yet, any sort of compensation for this harm is tremendously lacking. I don't know of anybody, maybe just one person that got paid from the uranium mine effect. Mm -hmm. She only got paid because she almost died. Really? And she had cancer throughout her 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 body. I don't know what part, but uh, 
that was the only person that I know. Yeah. I don't know, but we know of a lot of people, the ranchers, the white people this way, up towards uranium mine, Nevada, that, towards that mm -hmm. way. They all got paid. They really? got compensated. They the got run. compensated. Uh. You know, it's not the, about the money. It's the condition the U.S. government put us in mm -hmm. without telling us what could happen. They were, to me, they were just all trying to get rid of us one way or another, and still to this day, it's still happening. So how, how do you cope with all these feelings? Uh, uh, you just become numb to it. Some of us just close our eyes to it and, you know, they just live through it. Yeah. And if it's horrible and it's really affecting me and my children, then I speak up, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I do speak up for other people if they can't. Mm -hmm. But it usually affects my health. Mm -hmm. My health where um, my blood pressure goes up and it makes myself sick. And, and I r really don't want to go there mm -hmm. because I want to be able to live to see my grandkids graduate and get married and have children and all this. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a balance. You're trying to do a balance to help your people and then to help yourself mm -hmm. and your own family. How long are you going to fight the uranium mine people, you know? How long are you going to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. So as a woman, it's really hard, you know, to keep your family, children together and then fight another fight over here. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know who can do that. I know I can. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried. The list of challenges Polly has faced over the course of her lifetime is depressingly long. The trauma of boarding school, a lifetime of health complications, forced removal from her homeland, pointed indifference from government agencies, and the relentless force of cultural assimilation. And yet, somehow, looking to the future, Polly has hope. What would you say gives you um, life or inspiration on a daily basis? My children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my children. Yeah. My grandchildren. When I see my grandson running around here, you know, lively and uh, full of energy, I thought, wow. <laughs> He's part of me, you know. Mm -hmm. And I look at him and I say, well, he's going to see a lot more. And I hope that he sees a lot better life than I have and suffered, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and that's sure. what I, that's what I live for. Christians, they say, they don't touch. Good and evil doesn't touch. The Navajos said, Navajo said they do touch. Mm. And where it touches, there creates an intersection. Mm. And that's where we are born into, that's where we die, right? Mm. And whatever, whatever we experience, we experience the mix. 
everybody has the capability to. It's, it's part of you, part of your nature, and nature has the same story. Because we're a part of it. We're a part of it. It's I mean, if we if we do something to harm, it will be to our own demise. Okay, let's take a step back from Polly and the others on Navajo Nation. What does all of this have to do with climate change? In episode two, we introduced the idea of sacrifice zones when we were talking about the fossil fuel industry in New Mexico. The idea that maintaining a carbon intensive culture requires places that we knowingly and continuously sacrifice, whether it be the mountains of West Virginia or the deserts of the Southwest. In the words of essayist and activist Naomi Klein, the thing about fossil fuels is that they are so inherently dirty and toxic that they require sacrificial people and places. People whose lungs and bodies can be sacrificed to work in the coal mines. People whose lands and water can be sacrificed to open pit mining and oil spills. And while uranium itself isn't a fossil fuel, you can see the correlation here. We have knowingly and continuously sacrificed the lives of Native Americans to the gods of profit and comfort. Somehow, we've all found ourselves living a worldview that sees sacrifice zones as a necessary evil, as inevitable, as normal even. And that, more than anything else, is why I believe we haven't found the willpower to collectively mobilize on climate change. Because the effects of it are just one more sacrifice that people like me won't feel, won't experience, and won't notice until it's too late. We haven't paid attention to the thousands of communities that have already been sacrificed. So why would we start now? Here's the catch to all of this, though, and the reason I have a vision for something better. The systems and underlying worldviews at fault here are not inherent to human life. No, they're distinct and changeable and not at all absolute. Unlike any other species we know of, we have the ability to inspect our thoughts and to reflect on our actions and to learn from our mistakes. And when it comes to this sacrifice zone mentality, we urgently need to have a widespread period of self-evaluation, because very soon it will be to all of our demise. Back to Naomi Klein again, she says, quote, We often hear climate change blamed on human nature, on the inherent greed and short-sightedness of our species. Diagnoses like this erase the very existence of human systems that organize life differently. Systems that insist that humans must think seven generations in the future must be not only good citizens, but also good ancestors, and must take no more than they need and give back to the land in order to protect and augment the cycles of regeneration, end quote. And that's exactly the type of existence we encountered on our journey to the Southwest. And I think we'd better keep listening. But getting back to justice um, in terms of how, how do you redeem health within all that, right. uh, you can't. You know, the damage is done. Um, I've had, we, we've talked about that whole area that um, Polly grew up in, that Black Falls area, mm -hmm. just uh, making a nuclear reservation and uh, just walling it off. And then the people that are still out there, their, their numbers are dwindling really fast. Mm -hmm. How you turn that, um, challenge that with health is a good question because um, what is a human person worth? How do you determine justice from this?
Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longnecker, who is also a photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. Special thanks goes to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And a big shout out this week to Tyrone and Felicia Thompson and their three kids for making us fry bread and feeding us dinner and putting us up in their hogan for a night. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. We've got episode previews, transcripts for each episode, some extra resources, and a really awesome episode three photo essay. So make sure you check it out. And just a heads up, we won't be releasing episode four next week, but stay tuned. We'll have it out the week after. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. See you in two weeks. Thank you.